What happens when you get caught running a con against Coney Island ticket booth operators? How can junk mail become a connection to a departed loved one? Each month at Hopewell Theater, questions like these are answered when a rotating cast of some of the most hilarious and moving storytellers around take center stage and tell all. Recorded live at Hopewell Theater in Hopewell, New Jersey, ladies and gentlemen, this really happened. Yes, you can applaud. I love applause. I have a very, uh, very fragile ego. I love applause. So no matter where I go, I always ask for applause. Hi, I'm Joey Novick. Welcome to This Really Happened, where we have a storytelling show telling stories of things that really happened. Okay, and then this, this is what we will do. So uh, this is our third storytelling show. I want to thank uh, everybody at the Hopewell Theater. Can we have a hand for this beautiful theater, which is great? We have uh, storytelling shows. We're going to be doing storytelling shows. This really happened. will be every, the first Friday of every month, except in, uh, like I'm telling a lie already, um, except in February and March. We're doing March uh, 8th and February 8th. December 2nd, an outstanding show called The Liar Show. Uh, this is where we bring in four storytellers who each tell um, a story Three of them are the truth, and one of them is a lie. So the first half of the show, they all tell their stories. The second half of the show, after a break, you, the audience, get to interrogate the liars and guess who the liar is. And if you do happen to guess, you win a T-shirt. So you can increase your, uh, your clothing if you happen to be able to read body language. I know, that's strange, but that's what we do. So um, I am, um, is a, a very exciting time. Election day is Tuesday. Is that incredible? I think that's great. We finally, it's been uh, two years since the last presidential election. And I mentioned that there's uh, an election and then the alarms go off. You can hear engines, fire trucks are approaching as we move. This is great. Great. So, how many of you uh, are planning to vote? Applaud if you're planning to vote. Also, in New Jersey, they have early voting. Have you vote? Anybody voted early? Some of you, one person's voted early. You know, that that's important. A lot. If you vote early, and uh, I hope that there's a big turnout. I hope that democracy uh, chooses the right people. Because I actually spent. I was actually a uh, an elected official in New Jersey for 15 years. I served. I served on my borough council for 15 years in Flemington, New Jersey. Well, every every time I go like this, you just please applaud, okay? Because it'll just show. Oh, I guess. You know, I'll just show that I'm needy and want to do that. But I got elected. I moved to New Jersey, I guess, about uh, 25 years ago. We bought a house in Flemington, and I had a problem with my neighbor. And uh, that problem culminated in my calling the borough hall and actually asking, uh, how do I handle this problem? It was a, a, over a fence. His tree was over my fence. My, maybe my tree was over his fence. Eventually, I was told that I had to co to the borough council and actually talk to the borough council about my problem. So Rosie, my significant other, Rosie said to me, look, when you go there, be affable, be friendly, don't be an asshole. Because you want the help of those people, just don't be an asshole. And I said, I know how to be friendly, I'm good. I, am, uh, I know how to do this. So I go to the meeting 
And I must say that it was the, have you ever been to a local borough council meeting in New Jersey? It is, they're horrible. They're absolutely, it is, it, it is, I'm, it's, it was what, it's, it's horrible, what else? It's boring, it was boring, it was horrible. I'm sitting in the back and I was so bored, I actually took out a newspaper and started reading it and I was gaveled down. And the mayor said, can you please put away the newspaper? We don't let, we don't allow any reading here. And I mumbled under my breath, he heard me, and I mumbled under my breath, he goes, well maybe that's because no one up there can read. And that was not a good thing to start my relationship with the borough council at all. So I waited about an hour and they had public comments. I went up and I talked about my problem with my neighbor and I was gaveled again because I went over the time limit. I'm only allowed to speak for three minutes and I think I spoke for like three minutes, 45 seconds. And he told me I had to see the um, property maintenance officer or something. And the guy who was sitting up there running the meeting was a guy by the name of Bill Reed. And uh, that's important later in the story. So after the meeting, Rosie had suggested to me to stay until the end of the meeting so I could shake hands with him and thank him for hearing me out. So I waited to the end of the meeting, and I thought of a good joke to tell him. And I walked over, and I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm Joey Novick. Oh, your name is Bill Reed. Uh, that's, that's, that's an interesting name to have, because that's what you guys do here is read bills. He did, not, uh, he did not laugh either, and, uh, and I thought it because he didn't hear me, so I repeated the joke again, <laughs> just to make sure we connected, and he didn't laugh a second time, and I'm thinking, oh, well, you don't have a sense of humor. So I go home, and i just thinking, he, uh, when I put my hand out to shake his hand, he did not shake my hand at all, and he asked me, how long have I lived in town? And I said, oh, I moved here about four months ago, and... Then he inter in, in, interrupted me by saying, oh great, so you moved to town and you just bring all your problems here. And I'm thinking, what an asshole this guy is. I go home, I complain about it to Rosie, and I even said to Rosie, Rosie, I even tried to tell a joke. I told a joke, I said, oh, his name is Bill Reed, and uh, you, all you do here is read bills. Now Rosie didn't get it either, so I repeated it a second time to her. Also, she didn't find it funny either. So. Months and months go by, uh, we go through an election season, there's somebody who knocks on my door, I get a little involved in the Democratic Party, and as a, uh, here I am as a stand-up committee, I actually get asked to run for office. To run for borough, I thought so too. I actually get, a, uh, he actually says, well, would you uh, like to run for office? And I was thinking, nah, I don't want to do that, that is ridiculous. He said, well, look, why don't you come to a borough council meeting and sit and watch with me, and then you can decide, and afterwards we can talk about it, I'll buy you dinner. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna get a free dinner out of it, I might as well go. So we go to the meeting again, and the same guy is up there uh, running the meeting, and it is the most boring thing in the world, horrible boring, and then I asked the question that would change my life forever. I leaned in and I said, oh, who would I be running against? And his hand went up very slowly, and he pointed at Bill Reed. <laughs> and I said, oh, I am so in. And my mind started working about what kind of campaign I would run. This is very exciting. We go out after. I have one beer, two beers, and I'm just getting excited and drunk on the idea of making this guy's life horrible. And I'm thinking, this is fantastic. I'm in. Then I get in my car, and I realize I have to tell Rosie that I've decided to run for borough council. And she says, what? You don't have enough time to go on the road. You don't have enough time to clean the cat tray. You don't have enough time to rake the leaves. This is what you want to do with your time? And I very meekly said, yes. 
And she said to me, well, at least, you know, I think you only want to run for office because you want the attention, you want to be able to tell jokes and get attention while you're up on council. And I said, no, absolutely not. She guessed all the right reasons, but the point is, I didn't really need to hear that. So, I went back and I found a, um, my soap opera picture as an actor, and I put that together with my campaign material, and I looked very like, I don't know, I looked a little like very like leading man like, I looked very uh, uh, leaning man-ish. So I put that on a piece of campaign material and I started going door to door. And um, uh, the very first, uh, now, I, now I have to understand, I'm not reading anything about the issues. I'm not going to meetings. I really know nothing. Rosie says to me, well, at least learn the issues, read the newspapers, learn the laws. And I'm thinking internally that that's way too much work. I just want to go door to door and have some fun. So the first door I knock on, on Binnell Street, as a woman, I'll forget this woman, she says to me, oh, uh, Mr. Novick, I've heard about you running for office, a comedian running for office, but I just want to ask you, um, how would you fix the roads in town? Would you want to raise taxes to help pay for that, or would you uh, want to float a bond to fix the roads? And internally, I'm thinking, I have no idea what the fuck she's talking about. I have no idea, I didn't even know what bonding is. I knew that maybe taxes, I have no idea. So remembering my improv training, I say to her, I said, well, Mrs. Dudick, I know how I feel about the issue, but I'm actually out here today to hear what you have to say. Was that good, huh? So then she responds and she gives me all of this information about both sides and I'm taking notes and she says thank you very much. I go to the next door, I get the next question and I engage her the way Mrs. Dudick did and by five doors I know everything I need to know. And this really pissed off Rosie because uh, I didn't have to do any work and I'm learning how stuff works, right? It's pretty good. So I'm campaigning for about another week and then the first attack piece comes in the mail from the Republicans. It has a big picture of me kind of grayed out, and the headline reads, just say no e to Joey. We don't need his stand-up act on council. Tell him to sit down. And it goes about talking about how um, I'm a failed stand-up comedian, and I only want to work, I only want to be on council in order to make people laugh and get attention. And I'm thinking, did they talk to Rosie? I didn't know that. So I quit the race for about a week because I'm really upset about this. And my dad calls me and asks me how the uh, race went, was going. And I tell him that I quit. And I tell him about this campaign piece. And this is why people hate politics. And he says, you know, you may not win, but you're not a quitter. You should respond to him in some way. So I go on the internet and I find this quote from Will Rogers that says, I'm a comedian. When I tell a joke, uh, it gets a laugh. He's a politician. When he tells a joke, it becomes a law. I send that out in a press release. About a day later, the local newspaper picks it up, and there is an editorial that says, Mr. Reed, you owe Mr. Novick an apology because we don't attack people in America for what they do for a living. And then I start going door to door, and I discovered that everyone, think, everyone thought that Bill Reed was an asshole. So, I'm getting a little momentum. I still don't think I'm going to win. On the night of election night, they close the polls, all of the results come in, and I end up winning about 54 to 48. I actually end up winning and being the first Democrat elected in Flemington in about 30 years, and I'm very excited, and I have to call my dad. 
I call my dad and I say, Dad, I won. He's very excited. And as a good Jewish father, he says to me, oh, how much does that pay? <laughs> and I said, I think it's about 4000 a year. And he goes, oh, how much of that is off the books? And I said, it's a government job. I don't think any of it is off the books. He goes, well, talk to them. Maybe you get part of it off the books. Maybe you get part of it in cash. And I said, Dad, I don't think it works that way. But you know what? I ended up serving. I ended up winning four more times. I got reelected four more times. And for most of that time, I was the only Democrat on the Flemington Borough Council. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's what I think, too. So welcome to uh, uh, This Really Happened, where all the stories are true. All right, we're going to continue our show right now. Um, a uh, wonderful storyteller from Coney Island. He is a writer, director, filmmaker. Uh, he is uh, going to be telling a story called Hey Jerry, Michael Schwartz. The cyclone was looming on the horizon, waiting. I could see it in the distance. I could hear the screams. People were being chewed up and spit back out onto the hard pavement below. All my life I'd heard stories. When I was growing up, I knew it was always there, two blocks from my building, waiting for me. I made a vow to God very early on that you couldn't even drag me on that prehistoric roaring monster on the verge of collapsing at any moment. When I was 13 years old, they dragged me with complete disregard for my vow. 13 years old, the age the rabbis told us when you become a man. I tried to escape, but once you're in, the only way out is to get to the other side, unless you want to humiliate yourself by squeezing your way back through the long line of people behind you to exit through the entrance. I wanted to humiliate myself, but they wouldn't let me. The next thing I knew, I was in the seat. They lowered the bar, they locked the lock, they pulled the lever. No, this isn't happening. This isn't real. I I'm going to wake up right when we get to the top and see that it was all just a bad dream. The smell of the old wood withering away in the saltwater air was leaving splinters in my pounding heart as we slowly ascended that first and highest hill, all the other rides below turning into little toys as we clanked closer and closer to the almost 90-degree angle drop waiting for us over the edge. Help! I'm being kidnapped! I don't think I can survive the feeling of my stomach shooting up to my face. Oh my God, please help me, God. I'm too young to die. How can you let this happen. I'm just a 13-year-old boy. Is this really locked? It better be locked. There's no turning back now. I can't believe that this is happening. Why, God? Why? I know. I know. I'm a no-good, good-for-nothing non-believer who quit Hebrew school at nine years old only one and a half weeks after I started, but at least I eventually wound up getting a half Torah tutor once a week and then finally went through with the bar mitzvah. You gotta give me that. Ah! What? Huh? I did it? I did it. I did it! I was down the hill going up the next one and I was alive. I was still alive. And I was laughing, louder than anyone else, even God. The feeling of my stomach shooting up to my face wasn't as bad as I thought. I mean, it was bad, but kind of in a, in a good way, like falling from the sky in a dream and as you're about to hit the ground, waking yourself up just in time to save your life. And as my stomach went up going down each successive hill, that feeling started to be more and more of a thrill and the laughter got faster and faster with each violent turn slamming into each other harder and harder. And then the ride was over. What? That's it? 
I want to ride again. We had gotten on for free because when we were waiting in line, Artie Weinberger yelled out, hey, Jerry, can we get on one time for free? Artie learned to do that when his friend Louis Pinto did that and got him on for free. And Louis Pinto learned to do that when his friend Hector Rivera did that and got him on for free. And Hector Rivera learned to do that when his friend Sammy Sesso did that and got him on for free. And Sammy Sesso didn't learn it from anyone. He invented it. He was friends with Jerry. See, Pinto, Rivera, and Sesso were thugs from 16th Street between Neptune and Mermaid, the wrong side of the Stillwell Avenue station tracks. Jerry was Jerry Mendito operations manager of the cyclone. We thought he was the godfather. I told my friend Frankie from my building about it and we decided it was our turn to be Jerry's friends. So the next day, we snuck past the ticket booth man, waited in line, and yelled out over the chatter of the other people waiting and the screeching screams of the riders and deafening rattle of the roller coaster cars careening across the ancient rickety wooden tracks right above our heads. Hey, Jerry, could we get on one time for free? Please? On the other side of the cyclone's only stretch of horizontal tracks, Jerry sat there at his desk next to the big red and yellow lever that set the whole thing in motion every two minutes. With his broad but slightly slouching shoulders, his dapper comb-back silver hair, and his jutting Brando jaw, he eyed us dubiously like the guardian of the gates to the holy mountain that he was, St. Peter in a t-shirt up on his folding chair thrown as we poured on the poor, innocent, ride-deprived local kids with no money look until he finally gave a very slight head nod toward the first U-turn bend in the tracks that led to the ascension. It worked. We were in, anointed, blessed. Frankie and I furtively smirked at each other, then quickly looked away. And as we waited to board, the smell of the old wood didn't taunt me like it used to. This, this time it tantalized me, and I felt a tingling throughout my body. And there it was, the last car, hungry for our bones. Fortunately, someone else's bones had reserved the last car first, so we got into the front car. A little less violent, but more death-defying to the eyes. When the ride was over two minutes later, we got up and wobbled back out onto the street. We felt sexy and dangerous. We turned the corner in our lives. Anything was possible. Hey, Jerry, can we get on one time for free? Just one ride, please? Every other day, Jerry! At first, we were amazed each time he gave us the nod, but after a while, we, be we began to feel a sense of entitlement. Of course he's letting us on. It's us, the boys from Luna Park, the lunatics. We started getting our friends on, and one time I even got my older brothers and my older cousins visiting from Teaneck, New Jersey on. I felt proud, powerful, a guy who can make things happen, a neighborhood mover and shaker, the Coney Island kid, connected, tight with Jerry. It was time for Frankie and me to expand our operation, branch out a bit. We decided to start going around to the other rides and telling them, Jerry from the Cyclone asked if we could please get on one time for free. We knew what an important person he was, so it had to work. And anyway, his nod was becoming more and more subtle, almost imperceptible, which confirmed that he was so crazy about us, he didn't even have to nod anymore. It was just understood. For the next week, 
The two of us hit every twisting, whipping, dropping, bopping, thumping, bumping, flying, upside down, riding Coney Island, from the El Dorado disco bumper cars on the south side of Surf Avenue to the early 1900s antique organ playing B&B carousel on the north side of Surf Avenue to the Music Express and Enterprise in Astroland to the Scrambler Spookorama and Wonder Wheel on Jones Walk to the smoke-spitting Dragon's Cave on the Bowery right next to Schweikert's Walk where the bobsled used to be before the bulldozers came to the deceptively erector set built Wild Mass on West 12th Street to the resplendently decrepit Thunderbolt roller coaster, defiantly still running, the lonely wooden house over which it was built, mysteriously still inhabited, big dogs inside the windows barking at the boardwalk to the patient amusement of its towering next door neighbor, the parachute jump, which we would have tried to get on too if it wasn't for the fact that the parachute jump had been closed down for as long as I could remember. Our friends didn't recognize us anymore. We walked around with our bodies slightly slanted, our heads slightly tilted, a faraway look in our eyes, and our faces frozen in a giant teeth-bearing ear-to-ear grin, just like the exalted but forgotten funny face of Steeplechase, the funny place, which had watched over Coney Island for 61 years until real estate baron Fred C. Trump and his cronies held a brick and stone throwing party to preempt its imminent uh, protective landmark status because he just couldn't control his urge to whip out his whites only luxury high rise fallacy, never winding up being able to get it up anyway, smashing in the glass pavilion of fun and tearing down the enchanted steeplechase park exactly one month before my first birthday, paving the way for the poverty, housing projects, slums, drugs, crime, cruelty, and violence that chased me through my childhood. One day, after we'd gotten on the water flume for free, we were sticky with summer heat and humidity and needed another, another um, cold splash right away as we made our daily rounds. And although we were hesitant about hitting the same ride two days in a row, we figured the water flume guy would be too hot and tired to bother to wonder. We said, Jerry from the Cyclone asked if we could please get on one time for free, just as we'd said the day before but the heat didn't cause him to be a pushover. It caused him to be cranky, cost-conscious, suspicious. Wait a second, he said in his seething Brooklyn accent. Then he picked up the phone and started dialing. Frankie and I looked at each other nervously. Was he calling the cops? Should we run? The man mumbled something into the phone, listened, mumbled again, then hung up. And with glaring eyes hitting us harder than the rays of the relentless sun, he said, Jerry wants to see you at the cyclone right away. Now, all we had to do was go hide under the boardwalk for a bit, mix in with the crowd on the beach, cool off with a jump in the ocean, make a quick stop at Philip's old-fashioned candy store and scrounge in our pockets for enough change to chip in for one last chocolate egg cream with two straws and one final chocolate-covered frozen banana with crunchies, then go straight home, lay low for a while, never try to get any more free rides, and in time, the whole thing would blow over. We didn't have to go face Jerry at all. But we thought that as soon as Jerry sees it's us, he'd say, oh, it's you. Why didn't he say so? Okay, I'll call him back to tell him to let you on the water flume right away. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. So we got back to the cyclone, imperiously marched past the ticket booth man without even bothering to look up at him, pushed our way to the front of the crowd, as, to the front of the line as older kids grumbled, hey punks, what do you think you're doing? 
Jerry wants to see us, we shot back. So move aside. And there he was, sitting at his desk like Vito Corleone in his office, taking last requests during his daughter's wedding and granting favors. I had nerves to say, Godfather, may your daughter's first child be a masculine child, just like Luca Brazza did. But since neither Frankie or I wanted to sleep with the fishes that night, we decided just to stand there staring at him until he noticed us. I was hoping he'd just nod as usual. I'd never heard him speak before. This time he didn't nod. He spoke. Who the hell are you? I don't even know who you are! We're Sammy Says So's friends. Sammy who? Says so. Says so. Oh. Says so. Yeah. Who the hell is he? I don't know no says so. How dare you use my name? to run a con game all over Coney Island? He's got a lot of nerve, you know that? Who the hell do you think you are? Sweat was pouring uncontrollably down my face, burning my eyes, but I didn't dare move a muscle to wipe it off as Jerry unleashed his wrath upon us in front of all those innocent, hardworking people waiting to ride the cyclone, and Frankie and I prepared to die. Get the hell out of here. I don't ever want to see your faces again! Everyone stared as we lowered our heads, squeezed our way back through the finger-in-the-gut gauntlet of people we had just cut online, slunk back past the ticket booth man without daring to look up at him, and exited through the entrance. Banished. We'd been banished. Still alive, but banned for life. Frankie and I crossed Surf Avenue back to Luna Park and walked slowly up West 8th Street back to our building. When we got there, we walked up the staircase to the second floor where Frankie lived. But before he got out to go to his door, we finally glanced in each other's eyes. And for a second, with a sudden fluttering of our lips out of their stunned horizontal straightness, the corners turning back up almost imperceptibly, not into a smirk or a giant grin, but into the tentative beginnings of a simple smile, we shared something secret something profound. We knew we knew something new, but we didn't know what it was, just that it was different. And then we said something, our first words since our banishment. See you. Yeah. See you. Michael Schwartz, wonderful story. My um, 
grandmother, my father's mother, uh, lived in Coney Island, Brighton Beach, during the time I was growing up. And um, my father, uh, 1942, was drafted, went into uh, the Army, leaving uh, Brighton Beach. And um, 19, I guess it was late 1943, they were... Uh, on a patrol in a burnt out town in Italy. And they came upon this uh, only building in the entire town that was not burnt out and blown apart was a church. So they walk inside the church thinking that that was a place that snipers usually hid. And on the podium, on the podium that was untouched, there was the most magnificent concertina instrument that my father had ever seen. Now, my dad's mom, uh, Grandma Esther, was a musician. She, was, uh, she taught piano, made a little money on the side. My dad stole that concertina, which is not supposed to be, not supposed, you're not supposed to do that at all. That's highly illegal. You can be court-martialed for that. And what he started doing is he started taking that apart bit by bit, and each week or so, he would mail a different part to his mom in Coney Island. She would get that back in the States, open it up, see one part, keep it, get another part, and she was wondering what this is. After about three months, she looked like a musical instrument. She wasn't really sure. She takes the whole thing, puts it in a box, takes a train into the Lower East Side to this music store, and gives it to this old Jewish man who repairs uh, uh, instruments and says to him in Yiddish, I, my son's been sending this to me in parts, can you tell me what it is? He looks at it and says, oh, this is a very old and expensive concertina. I could put it back together for you, but it would cost you $11, which is about what my grandfather made each week working in the, in the garment district. She says, yes, put it together. My son sent this to me, so it must be important. So he spends about three weeks. He puts it together, gives her a call. She comes back. He, she picks it up beautiful, it works, beautiful music, she takes it home, she puts it in a box, she addresses it and mails it back to my father in Europe. <laughs> Never to be seen again, so I wish I had that instrument, but I have this story instead, so. All right, uh, we're gonna continue right now with our next storyteller, a very, very good friend of mine, known her for many years. Uh, she's a stand-up comedian who's worked comedy clubs all over. She also appears in storytelling shows all over New York. She appears regularly each Monday on the uh, John uh, Fugelsang uh, radio show called Tell Me Everything, and uh, she's gonna be telling a story called What's In My Bowl. Please welcome Rhonda Handsome. Thank you, thank you for that applause, everyone. Uh, I, I love that sound, thank you. It makes me feel all dark and lovely. <sighs> Actually, the man that I married um, <clears throat> grew up in Luna Park, it's, it's so funny, the, it's such a small world. And he used to pick up the balls in the batting range in uh, Coney Island, which was next to Fanny Waffle, Fanny's Waffles, which was actually his grandmother's um, waffle stand, so that was uh, really great to, to hear, hear about uh, Coney Island. <clears throat> this is a true story. <laughs> I 
Mom confidently pushed me under the turnstile and then dropped her token in the slot. I had been seven, the Catholic age of reason, for almost a year, but common sense trumped my fear of purgatory for not paying my fare. So I prayed as I scooched under the wooden turnstile. Dear God and New York City Transit, please forgive my venial sin for not paying my fare. Mom's a domestic and every nickel counts. Then hand in hand, we walked to the elevated station. Mom dropped my hand when a man greeted her. That's odd. We never talk to strangers. Rhonda, this is Lewis Powers. Lewis, this is my daughter, Rhonda. The dark man said hello, and I heard a West Indian accent. I mumbled hi at his shiny shoes. And then, hand in hand, Mom and I entered the Franklin Avenue shuttle. Ah, leaving the shiny shoe stranger behind. Good. Nothing to mar my rare day at work with mom. Oh my God, my head was spinning with anticipation. I get to make believe I live in a middle class home, <laughs> roaming the household, sampling the treats, endless treats that the pantry held. <gasps> And the highlight of the day, Mrs. Strafasi always gave a little something for little Rhonda to take home. Oh. I didn't give the shiny shoe stranger another thought. It was a great day. Months later, I came home from Catholic school, a latchkey kid, and was surprised to see mom home, dressed up and wearing a corsage, and Lewis Powers standing next to her. Rhonda, Lewis and I got married today and then went to the zoo in Prospect Park. My jaw clenched tight, but my head roared questions. You went to the zoo without me? Why would two adults go to the zoo without the eight-year-old in the room? Why didn't you marry my father? I don't even get a day off from school for your wedding. Is there any cake? Where is he gonna sleep? He took my place in the bed. I never liked my mother's husband. I called the bow leg shiny shoe stranger Lewis. 
Mom's severely swollen legs and constant spitting were the hallmarks, the signs of her pregnancy and the end of my reign as her only child. I tolerated the new baby as only a resentful nine-year-old could. <coughs> I had a 7.30 bedtime, but my half-sister Joan never went to sleep before 3 a.m. So every night, my mother walked the floor cooing and rocking the mewling insomniac spawn of Lewis Powers. I never liked my mother's husband. Then came the day I hated him. Lewis attacked my mother like an opponent in a wrestling ring. I wanted to move. But if I went to the kitchen and got the butcher knife and stabbed him there, and there, and there, I'd surely go to hell for that mortal sin. So I watched as her half slip slid down and around, as she struggled to defend herself. Nude, mom scrambled to the back door of our cold water flat. Lewis chased her over the fence and into the home of our next door neighbor where I guess he finally stopped beating her. We didn't talk about the beatings and mom didn't go to clean houses for two whole days. A week later, home from fourth grade, a strange odor hit me at the door, pungent, thick, heavy, and coming from the pot on the stove. Mom, what's that smell? She looked at me for a really long time. You really want to know? Yes. She clanged the spoon on the lid of the pot and set it on the stove. Can you keep a secret? Can I keep a secret? I never told anyone, not even the priest, in the confessional that I hated my mother's husband and wished he was dead. Yes, I can keep a secret. Mom picked up the spoon and said, I killed Lewis Powers today. I cut him up and put him in here. Well, that explained the smell. I looked in the enormous pot. Gigantic chunks of dark, stringy meat jostled for room in the enormous cauldron. We've got to eat this. 
If I don't get rid of the evidence, I'll have to go to jail. Will you help me? Yes. I expected to hear Rod Serling at any minute. Mom filled my bowl and gave me a fork. I was determined to keep mom out of jail. <laughs> Lewis didn't taste like chicken. <laughs> yes, even cooked. He was just like I remembered him, dusky and tough. I handed mom an empty bowl. You want some more? Oh, um, I'm, I'm kind of full. Mom, where did you do it? Down in the basement. You want to see the rest of the body? Yes. This was the moment I had been longing for. Seeing his dead body. Hand in hand, we walked to the basement door. Mom slid the bolt aside, turned the knob, and paused. It's always dusty down there. And the smell down there now is pretty bad. I don't want you to get an asthma attack down there. She slid the bolt back and went back to the pot. I was disappointed. But mom was right. Dust dander, even chocolate, could leave me in the emergency room overnight. So I changed my school uniform and did my homework. <laughs> I hadn't felt this good in a long time. Joan was next door playing, and Lewis Powers was finally dead and gone. It, oh, it was just me. And mom, <laughs> when I finished my homework, I brought it to mom to sign. She said, after writing her name, Rhonda, I put Lewis Powers out today. I know, mom, his body's in the basement. No. I put him out of the house. I made him leave. What was in my bowl? And what's that awful smell? This week, Mr. Strafasi went hunting and gave us some of what they call venison, deer meat. 
Now this was when I thought Rod Serling would walk in. So, mom wasn't going to jail, and I wasn't going to hell. I never liked my mother's husband, but I never loved him more than when he was in my bowl. And Rod Serling would be proud. So uh, after our regular show, what we've been doing each week is having a feature called Two Minute Tales. Anybody from the audience who would like to come up and tell a story, just to let you know, storytelling is the oldest form of entertainment. When people were in tribes, when people were in their homes, where people were in their groups and communities, they would entertain each other, they would inform, they would teach each other by telling each other's stories. So if you have a story that yearns to be told, please join us at the end of the show and just come up here, I will introduce you, and you'll have about two or three minutes to tell you a story. How would you like that? Some of you want to tell some stories? Certainly, if you have some story that you want to tell, it's great. So, I want to bring up our next storyteller. Uh, the Washington Post called Jamie Brickhouse a natural raconteur. He's a three-time Moths Slam champion and has recorded voices on Beavis and Bus Buffett. I'm sorry, Beavis and Butthead. Uh, tomorrow night, he will be producing his second solo show called I Favor My Daddy in New York City at 7 p.m. Uh, Jamie has flyers, which you can uh, take and you can learn all about his show. Tonight's monologue, tonight's story comes from that show. Please welcome a nice round of applause, Mr. Jamie Brickhouse. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. For, and let's have another round of applause for all those fabulous storytellers before me. I'm still disappointed that Rhonda didn't need her stepfather, but, um, but I was with you that whole time. The day after my father, J. Earl Brickhouse, died suddenly at 83 in 2014, I smirked like Sarah Palin. As I gathered up his 13-year collection of George and Laura Bush Christmas cards. They had metastasized like a Republican cancer. Now, I didn't know how I was going to get through everything in that vast house of his. My mother was, had already died a few years earlier. He was the last one. I was going to have to go through everything in there. I didn't know what I was going to keep, what uh, I was going to sell, what we we're going to give away, but I knew the first thing I was going to throw away. <laughs> and I gathered up all those cards and I threw them in the trash. Yeah, you can applaud that. I thought I was giving the Fox News side of him a thorough Karen Silkwood shower, but God and the dead have a merciless sense of humor. The next morning, I opened the mailbox uh, at his Texas home, outpoured a diarrhea 
of conservative correspondence. From places like the National Republican Committee, the American Conservative Coalition, the NRA, the Tea Party Express, Ted Cruz, Heidi Cruz, um, pleas from Priests for Life to save the newly inseminated. With headlines like, late-term abortions are happening more often than you think. And I'm like, really? I mean, how many people are having late-term abortions? Procrastinators, I guess. Now, my father and I adored each other. He called me Jamie Poo, and we, when he became an old man, I started to call him Daddy Poo. And occasionally, we would have political arguments, usually when I was down in Texas visiting him and he was watching Fox News. But for the most part, we let politics remain the red, white, and blue elephant in the middle of the room. And we focused on what we had in common, old movies and theater, and trading jokes. We both had a great sense of humor. But I think secretly we kept harboring wishes for each other. He kept wishing I would vote Republican, and I kept wishing he would stop. I guess I finally got my wish. And, you know, my whole life he had always accepted me, uh, my homosexuality, but he'd never quite accepted my politics. And I just kind of always felt like I had to accept his politics. So, I stayed down there uh, for a few weeks because I was the executor of the estate, and I don't know if you've ever had to do this, but I mean, it's a lot of work, and you've got to, you know, not only did I have to go through everything in the house, but I had to send out that damn death certificate, I had to fax it, I had to email it, I had to hand deliver it, I had to um, uh, snail mail it. And it was constant, and you know, and I'd spend time making all those phone calls, canceling his credit cards, you know, I'm on the phone, hi, um, I'd like to cancel my father, J.L. Brickhouse's Neiman Marcus credit card. He died recently. Are you the executioner? <laughs> yeah, judge and jury. What? Never mind. But I have to tell you, every day, I would open that mailbox, and I would winnow out the important stuff from all that conservative crap that arrived as frequently as anti-LGBTQ measures in the southern states, and it would go right from the mailbox into a giant, hefty garbage bag, and it was cathartic as I would watch the dump truck, the, the garbage truck, crush into fresh landfill. All those Hillary hate letters and Obama scare you diatribes. And a few months later, I sold the house. And then I closed the mailbox. The mail is done. Ha! Two weeks later, I opened the tiny mail slot in the lobby of my Manhattan apartment building. Outpours, you got it. A conservative diarrhea of all of his mail with those yellow forwarding address stickers. It's following me! And now my friendly mailman had suddenly become a specter of the Republican agenda. And I started checking my mail in the lobby furtively so that my, my liberal neighbors wouldn't see, as if it contained kitty porn, instead of what it actually contained. Envelopes with headlines like, 
Ted Cruz for president. This was 2015, a kinder, gentler time. Now, I am old enough that I still receive fun mail. Postcards from traveling friends and, and Christmas cards from friends near and wide. But the one sender of fun mail missing, Daddy Pooh. When he was alive, I would get, at least once a week, some newspaper clipping from him with a yellow post-it note with his witty, wry comments written in, written in shaky, old man Halloween font. And as much as I hated receiving all of his conservative crap, it was a perverse way of staying connected with him. But God damn it, old people receive a lot of mail. And dead people even more. I said to myself, okay, just relax, calm down. When the yellow forwarding address window expires, the mail will stop, right? Congratulations, J.L. Brickhouse, on your recent move. Now the mail was being sent directly to him at my mailbox. They have to be stopped! I screamed like, like Norma Ray or Aaron Brockovich. And I started, I, I, I took each and every envelope, and I wrote in red magic marker in all caps, return to sender. Dead, deceased, can no longer give mail. I mean, can, can no longer give money or donate to you monsters. It didn't work. A couple of days later, my mail slot was even fatter. All those return to sender envelopes came right back to me like carrier pigeons come home to roost. Because it turns out that um, junk mail can't be returned because of the special postage rate. And then I went a little crazy. I started calling each and every organization individually, demanding that they cease mailing the deceased. My work started to suffer. I skipped meals, I forgot to bathe. And still I was barely making a dent. And I looked at my dining room table that was covered with his pileup of mail and was like, it's winning. The mail is winning. So I'm on the phone one day making one of these calls to a nice conservative Christian lady from the American Bible Society. And she says, you know, these calls are about as effective as placing postage stamps in the holes of the Titanic. You know, there is a faster way. There's a service online where you can register your father's name and they remove dead people from mailing list. Thank God, I said to her. Please do. So about a year after his death, the following Christmas, his mail died. And I'm sitting in my living room opening my own junk mail. And junk mail really does say a lot about a person. I mean, what did it say about him? It said he was a retired army vet, Catholic conservative who likes Broadway shows. And what does it say about me? That I am a liberal gay writer with credit card issues who likes Broadway shows. So I get through my junk mail and then I get to the fun stuff, the Christmas cards. 
from friends far and wide, and I save the largest envelope for last, and I open it up, and out pops an 8 by 10 glossy color photo of a heterosexual couple, and they're in front of a giant Christmas tree. And the man is sporting a monkey mischievous grin with his red tie, and the woman in pearls has the lobotomized glaze of a Stepford wife. And the greeting reads, J.L. Brickhouse, warmest holiday wishes, George and Laura Bush. Thank you. <laughs> and I know you're, um, New York is, not, it's not that far. So if you're in town next, uh, tomorrow, um, I'm doing my show, I Favor My Daddy, at 7 o'clock. It's just a, it's a scant hour, so you can have dinner before or dinner after. And it's at the Crane Theater in the East Village. Uh, tickets are only $20, and I have some really cheap down and dirty flyers that I can hand to you. Um, before you go, and thank you for having me. Jamie Brickhouse with the show, I favor my daddy. Um, so, uh, thank you very much, Liz Fan, for all of our storytellers tonight, Rhonda Hansom, Gail Thomas, uh, Michael Schwartz, and Jamie Brickhouse. And now, I want to uh, invite anybody, does anybody have a uh, story to tell? I know David mentioned to me, is David Suarez here? David? Oh, I thought David David mentioned to me. Anybody would like to tell a uh, kickoff with a story? Please just raise your hand, come up to the stage. I'll introduce you. I will uh, tell a um, one, uh, I will tell one quick story. Oh, David, I see David there. I will tell, uh, oh, well, let me just bring Dave. David, are you there? You're coming up? Is David? Suarez, is he out there? I, I'm sorry? You're not gonna tell? No, you're good. Okay. Well, then I was gonna. I'm gonna share another story myself that I hope that you enjoy. So I go down to uh, Florida to visit my parents. That was always a great time. This trip was to set up all the technology in their new condo. Okay. My parents had gotten a computer. They got an iPhone. It was my job to set up, and they got a shredder. It was my job to set all of this up for them. So I want to tell you a little bit about my mother and technology. Before we got her a laptop, I would visit with them while I'd be playing a comedy club down there, and I would use my laptop, and Rosie would use hers. My significant other, Rosie, would use hers. And I told Rosie, I said, Rosie, if you pick up a signal from the neighbor in order to use wireless, don't tell my mother that you're picking that up. And Rosie kind of forgot about that, and my mom is sitting at the kitchen table, and my mom asks Rosie, how are you getting online? And then Rosie says, oh, I'm getting a signal, I think, from your neighbor. And then my mother freaks out. Says, oh my God, we're getting radiation through the walls from our neighbor. Shut down the computer immediately. And she just shuts down the computer. Just shuts down the computer. All right, are you, is somebody signaling me back there? Oh, I was wondering, okay. Um, and the other bit of technology that my father had was uh, he had his phone. My dad um, had his phone and we go into Verizon and my dad has a, a complaint and he uh, says, my phone has no dial tone. And the guy behind the desk says, well, yes, sir, it has no dial tone. And my father says, oh, you know about this. 
Shouldn't you be telling everybody? So anyway, I want to uh, tell you next next month's show is uh, December 2nd. It is the, the Liar Show. You can buy tickets online. A wonderful show. And um, we have uh, a show coming up in November 23rd. A very good friend of mine, comedian Julia Scotti, will be here. And uh, again, let's have a hand for all of our storytellers. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Joey Novick, and take care. Thank you. Good night. For more information on This Really Happened and other programs in our selectively eclectic lineup, please visit HopewellTheater.com.